0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
1: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. We're back out in Washington, D.C. Restaurant Supra is our hosting restaurant. We thank them for their hospitality. Ladies and gentlemen, I told you several weeks ago that this show would devote considerable attention to the ongoing story of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This week, we will do the same. And I know for some of you, this story is feeling a little bit familiar. Maybe you're becoming slightly numb to the imagery out of Ukraine. Maybe you wonder if there's a reason to sort of move on. Well, let me just suggest a couple of things, particularly to our friends in New York City. Traumatized this week by a shooting inside a subway station in Brooklyn. That was a traumatic event for the city of New York and, by extension, the country. Think about a subway in Ukraine in which people have lived for weeks and weeks. Missiles raining down just above their heads, unable to replenish themselves very well, very well with food or water. Uncertain about their future and wondering if they can ever get out of that subway station to become a refugee fleeing down a road to an uncertain future. Just for context, I want to remind you of what's playing out hour by hour, day by day in Ukraine. And also that, let's just say you're not thinking so much about New York City, but you're thinking about inflation. Well, if you're thinking about anything that has wheat in it, it's affected by the war in Ukraine. If you're thinking about shipping and supply chain issues, it's affected by the war in Ukraine. So even our day-to-day life here in America, though it doesn't always feel that way, is affected by this war. So that's why I'm going to continue on this show to have a conversation about its many dimensions. One of the dimensions is what is happening in neighboring countries. And a couple of weeks ago it occurred to me, I would like to know what the Polish ambassador to the United States can tell us about what Poland is going through. It's the largest recipient by number of refugees from Ukraine. What are the stresses? What are the adaptations? What's Poland's perspective on this ongoing, massive international story? To help us do that, the Polish ambassador of the United States is with us. Marek Magyarowski. Not bad? Pretty good? Thanks, thanks a lot for having me. It's Perfect good to have you. Perfect pronunciation. Very good. Thank you. So and
2: believe me, I also think about inflation. Yes, <laughs> indeed. So, by the way, we are having this meeting in a Georgian restaurant. Yes. And Georgia was another country invaded by Russia 14 years ago. So it's also pretty Symbolically symbolic. important,
1: oh, yes. no doubt. So, big picture, Mr. Ambassador, what is Poland going through right now? What are the numbers? I've seen 2.6, 2.5 million refugees from Ukraine update 2. us on 7.
2: that. Okay. It's almost 2.7 million refugees who have already crossed the Polish border since the beginning of the hostilities. And as I've already said on multiple occasions during uh, interviews which I have given here, in america uh, this is probably the first uh, humanitarian crisis in europe's history in which the host country does not need to build refugee camps there were some congressional delegations and politicians from western countries visiting poland over the last couple of weeks and they were asking the polish border guards or their counterparts from the polish government where are the refugee camps we would like to visit one right turns out there are none Because uh, an overwhelming majority of those refugees are being hosted right now in Polish homes, by Polish families. Of course, also in boarding houses and gyms, in schools, at stadiums. But most of them have been um, embraced by uh, their Polish brethren, by Polish families. Many of them have decided to stay in Poland. Some of them returned to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some re-emigrated to other European countries like Germany, France or Sweden. Britain, also some to the United States. But according to a a poll which came out two days ago, about one-third of those refugees who have arrived in Poland since the beginning of the war want to stay in Poland. And I'll tell you why. Because even before the war, there was fertile ground for the absorption of those refugees. Uh, Approximately 1.5 million Ukrainians had already lived and worked in Poland before the Russian aggression. So uh, the Ukrainians who have arrived in Poland now, they already have their relatives and their Mm -hmm. families in Poland uh, integrated into the Polish society, integrated into the Polish labor market. By the way, they were really integrated smoothly, impeccably Mm -hmm. into the Polish society. And a few weeks ago, the Polish parliament approved a bill, a pretty innovative one, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, essentially facilitates... Uh, the Ukrainian immigrants, the Ukrainian refugees' integration into our country. For example, they can apply for Polish IDs. Now, more than 800,000 people have already received officially a Polish ID. Mm -hmm. That allows them, for instance, to set up their own businesses. They can send their children to Polish schools. They are eligible for uh, health insurance, which is uh, uh, universally free Mm -hmm. in Poland. Uh, paid for by taxpayers. So a lot of benefits, which the Ukrainian refugees have already received in Poland, a lot of solidarity and a lot of love.
1: Is there any stressors associated with this, economically, culturally, politically?
2: Definitely. Uh, This is also, we are trying not to use the term humanitarian crisis, but we we can't refrain actually from using this term. It is uh, a humanitarian and a social burden uh, for the Polish state, for the local authorities, for municipalities. And that's why, for example, many mayors of Polish cities are now in talks with their counterparts in Europe and beyond, also in the United States, about the possibility uh, of relocation of at least some of those refugees mm-hmm. to other countries. Of course, we can't force them to right. to uh, migrate farther.
1: But maybe create a, an informal sister city relationship in yes. which refugees yeah. can be taken uh, in... On an additionally, ad basis. yes.
2: Ad- additionally, they concentrate mostly in big cities, which is mm-hmm. also uh, quite an issue for us. So we would like to to put it bluntly to spread them out a little bit. Still, they are most welcome in Poland. We mm-hmm. are ready and willing to absorb even more waves of refugees from Ukraine because I don't believe this this war will end soon.
1: There will be some, Mr. Ambassador, in my audience who will remember that wasn't the Polish government's reaction. To refugees coming from Iraq or Afghanistan or in 2015 from Syria yeah. what's the difference and why
2: uh, There is a distinct difference between these two crises. Um, in the other case we had that crisis and uh, along the the, uh, the, the Polish-Belarusian border yes uh, it was engineered and artificially created by the Belarusian authorities by uh, President Lukashenko mm-hmm. um, who had been elected, by the way, in the rigged elections, as you uh, may remember. I do indeed. And those refugees were uh, actually transported, transferred physically from Baghdad, from Afghanistan, uh, from other Middle East uh, countries to Belarus. And then they um, emigrated further towards the Polish border. And they were actually literally pushed by Belarusian uh, police, by Belarusian um, soldiers, uh, towards the border. They were pushed towards the Kolsantina wires and the war which we are now building uh, along this uh, border. And Fo- all the policy, in other words, on the policy the which state. the Polish government conducted at the time was strictly based on international law. Because in this case, when we are talking about Ukrainian refugees, we are talking about a, a country ravaged by war. Mm-hmm. And Poland is the first country under international law in which those refugees can uh, can seek asylum and can seek protection unlike all those refugees that you have just mentioned Mm -hmm. from iraq afghanistan and syria belarus was the first country actually because they arrived by planes mostly from uh, their home countries to belarus it was an 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 operation not a a humanitarian or migration Mm -hmm. crisis Mm -hmm. it was a deliberate operation by the Belarusian regime, to destabilize, destabilize, destabilize uh, to um, create destabilize. Chaos, to yes. destabilize, to create chaos along the Polish-Belarusian border and in, in the wider region.
1: Very good. That is the voice of the Polish ambassador to the United States. His name is Marek Magyarowski. It's very good to have you with us. We are at Super Restaurant. When we come back, one of the things I want the audience to understand and appreciate, and I know they will the more we talk, before he was a diplomat. His first posting before America was Israel. By the way, he was a journalist and columnist, and as all journalists and columnists know, you never stop being that one way or the other.
2: my shameful past. Uh, Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So I want to
1: have the ambassador describe what's going on in Ukraine as a story, as he sees it. When we come back, I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of the takeout in just one moment.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Our thanks again to Supra, our host restaurant. We are with the Polish ambassador to the United States. His name is Marek Magareski, Mr. Ambassador, Tim Penny in the background there. Uh, you are a journalist and a columnist before becoming a diplomat. Uh, I, you saw me in the opening of the program describe my orientation to this as a story. But what is your orientation to what's happening in Ukraine as a story of Europe, as a story for the United States, as a story for the world?
2: It's a story of a European country which was under the communist yoke for many years, like us. The difference is, and again, again this is a very distinct difference, we're, we're, we have never been a Soviet republic. Mm-hmm. Poland has never been a part of the Soviet Union, luckily. On the other hand, I myself have been lucky to have lived under both systems because I was born under communism, I experienced command economy, and then I lived under democracy and under capitalism, which was pretty savage, by the way, at the very beginning of our transformation. But I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So I, I know these two experiences, which are very important for me in terms of my um, uh, education and more, my moral approach to what is going on right now in Ukraine. Then, in the 90, at the beginning of the 90s, when the Berlin Wall collapsed and mm-hmm. communism uh, finally demised, um, Poland grew much faster. Ukraine grew a little slower, also because of the post-communist legacy. Um, but now we can see, in plain view, that we are talking about a European nation and a Euro- European country. Unlike Russia, in which those vestiges of communism are still so vivid. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only communism, the, um, the Stalinism.
1: Stalinism, Which yes. ended but, with
2: mm-hmm. uh, the death of that uh, despicable dictator in the 50s. But somehow they remained in the, in the Russian mentality. Mm-hmm. It's so deeply... Seared in their mindset and we can see that in their narrative in their rhetoric mm-hmm. in all those absurd allegations of the necessity to denazify right. ukraine so this is a story of ukraine a country uh, which of course is not immune to uh, some phenomena which we we have also experienced like corruption uh, political turbulences mm-hmm. over the lo- those last uh, three decades. But we can see now, again, and I would like to stress this very clearly, that unlike Russia, Ukraine is a, is a profoundly European country and the Ukrainians have absolutely deserved to be part of the European Union and NATO.
1: And continuing that narrative, what are the stakes?
2: Our freedom, our independence, our sovereignty... And uh, I don't mean uh, solely the so-called Eastern flank and uh, countries which are geographically located between uh, Russia and Ukraine and uh, the part of Europe which was always independent and free after World War II. Uh, we weren't. Mm-hmm. And now we fear and we are very much concerned that we have already uh, reached a turning point in our contemporary history and that's why, for example, we are insisting on the necessity to arm ourselves and also to arm Ukraine, because mm-hmm. we cannot engage militarily in a major, full-out confrontation with Russia. Also, because Ukraine is not a NATO member state, and mm-hmm. we, and technically, and legally, and also politically, we cannot defend Ukraine um, directly. But what we we can do, and what we have been doing for the last couple of weeks, is deliver as many and as sophisticated weapons to Ukraine mm-hmm. as possible.
1: Mm-hmm. On this program last week, David Miliband, who I'm sure you're familiar with, president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, said, Major, you and your audience should prepare yourselves for harder, grimmer, uglier days ahead. He didn't know what that meant, but a day later, there was a missile strike on a train station. Yeah. Do you agree with that, the coming Russian offensive now directed primarily to the east and southeast of Ukraine? You know,
2: the mood, the mood has been fluctuating mm-hmm. over the last couple of days because uh, nobody believed that the Russians would be, would, would be uh, performing so miserably mm-hmm. in Ukraine in, in, in terms of their military operations. Everybody was sure, also among the, the Western political elites, that Kiev would be taken in 72 hours. The I'm, Ukrainian I'm sure your government, army, like our government, yes.
1: feared that before the
2: invasion. And, and I can't blame anyone for this kind of predictions because mm-hmm. it was natural to think about the Russian army right. as a behemoth, right. which would you know just uh, lay waste. crush everyone. Yes, mm-hmm. they, they would lay waste to, to every Ukrainian city.
1: Topple the capital, topple the government, yeah. put in a puppet regime.
2: Now I'm wondering how many books on wartime logistics those Russian generals have ever read. I've read some. Mm-hmm. I'm not a military expert, but I believe I, I know a little bit more about logistics than some of those Russian commanders. So it, it is a grave embarrassment for the Russian army. Uh, so far they have lost, according to latest estimates, about 500 tanks, loss of casualties. Uh, so the, the, the losses they are, uh, they are suffering right now are at least comparable to what they experienced in Afghanistan, a mm-hmm. war which lasted a decade. A decade. So, uh it's very hard to predict what will happen next week or in a month's time two months nobody can 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 say uh, what kind of of uh, what what will be the next stage of uh, this confrontation the Russians are apparently regrouping now they are moving their units to the eastern part of Ukraine the question is to what extent Putin has actually changed the military goals of this uh, special military operation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whether he will uh, be satisfied with uh, somehow reconquering those two breakaway provinces in the east or creating that uh, land corridor which would connect uh, Luhansk and Donetsk with the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, it's very, I, I, I don't have that much hubris to analyze and navigate Putin's mind. The one thing I'm sure of is that uh, we are dealing with pure evil. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All those scenes and images that we have seen over the last couple of uh, uh, weeks are absolutely uh, outrageous, abhorrent. You mentioned the shelling of the Mm. Kremators railway station, um, uh, bombing hospitals, killing indiscriminately uh, defenseless civilians, Mm. targeting civilian infrastructure. Uh, But this is part and parcel of the Russian army's modus operandi. We have seen it so many times in the past. during Its the World military War II doctrine Poland, is
1: escalate to de-escalate, meaning wear down your enemy with, by whatever means you possibly can, and including still civilians. Instill fear, fear, civilians.
2: Right. Um, this is something absolutely unacceptable. And no wonder uh, so many Western politicians are now... Uh, using the term genocide. Mm-hmm. They, they, are not, uh, they don't shy from using some very war harsh adjectives right. describing and defining what the Russian army is doing now in, in Ukraine. But I want to be clear on one particular issue. This is not Putin's war. This is Russia's war. And there is a tendency among some politicians in Western Europe to blame Putin for what is happening now in, in Ukraine. But when you look at the polls, I know the the polls mm-hmm. which are uh, which are published in Russia are not very credible. But anyway, if you have between seventy and eighty percent of the population supporting the war, yep. uh, they are, you know, zombified. They believe I mean, it's a war yeah, of liberation. They the believe it's a
1: denazification effort. They, they they buy well, they whether whether we call they live it a in branded an
2: information bubble.
1: Right. Whether we branded propaganda, they believe it and they support it, which is the distinction you're trying to make.
2: Yeah. So So, uh, and again. Uh, I believe Ukraine is not the last item on Putin's menu. And that's why, uh, if you ask me, if we are concerned, if we are really preoccupied with uh, what is occurring right now in Ukraine, of course we are. Of course we are. We have been trying to alert the world about Russia's neo-imperial ambitions and about Putin's malign intentions. Uh, We've known Russia for so many years. We have excellent experts who have written you know, thousands of pages of analysis about uh, Russian politics, Russia's policy, uh, and the brutality of the Russian regime. And now it turns out it is so hard to convince some of our European partners, for example, to block oil and gas imports from Russia, in spite of the fact that everybody is acutely aware that buying oil and gas and coal and other raw materials from Russia We are financing his war machine.
1: With that, we're going to take a break. Mr. Ambassador, with your indulgence, that's a great point. I want to pick up on that. On the other side of this break, I'm Major Garrett, Poland's ambassador to the United States. Marek Magorowski is our guest. More of this conversation from Supra, our host restaurant, in just one
0: moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. From CBS News,
1: this is The Takeout
0: with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome back to The Takeout. By the way, however you find this show, whether you're listening on a podcast, going for a run, a walk, on your treadmill, it's great to have you with us. Radio stations around our country, thank you for finding us. CBS News streaming, it's always great to be with you. And on SiriusXM, POTUS Channel 124, we're on lots of different platforms. However you find us, thanks for being with us each and every week. I'm Major Garrett. Polish Ambassador to the United States, Marek Magarewski, is our special guest, Mr. Ambassador. You were making a point before we went to break about maybe one term is squeamish, another is uh, economically nervous European politicians and or countries unwilling to take an economic step that would, in your words, if not disable, limit the economic wherewithal of Russia to continue to prosecute this war in Ukraine. Be more specific.
2: There are some sex experts who argue that if we block oil, gas and coal imports from Russia entirely, this war would end in two weeks mm. because Putin would not have financial resources to continue his, uh, uh, his military operation in Ukraine. Uh, I, I wouldn't be so uh, optimistic and enthusiastic about the effects of, this, uh, um, of the strengthening of the sanctions. Uh, I'm convinced that we have to close all the loopholes which mm-hmm. still exist in the sanctions packages which have been in, in introduced so far by major uh, European and not only European powers. There are some countries like Germany and France and Austria and Hungary which are more hesitant than others to more tighten, on to tighten this news and, and, and more, more dependent on, on imports of Russian uh, commodities. Uh, we were more prescient, if you will, Many years ago, we started thinking about how to render Poland independent mm-hmm. of uh, imports of Russian gas. We uh, began to build an LNG terminal, the first Liquified one on the, gas, right? on, the co- on the Polish stretch of the Baltic coast. Uh, in a few months, we will inaugurate the so-called Baltic pipeline, which will deliver gas from the Norwegian continental shelf via Denmark to uh, Poland. Our long-term contract with Gazprom expires this year by October. Gazprom is the national energy it. firm in Russia. We are not going to renew it. And we will, it. Be, we will be entirely independent of Russia as gas supplier mm-hmm. to our country, as opposed to Germany, to Austria, to Hungary, and many other countries in Europe. So I do understand yes. this hesitation. I had the opportunity to talk to, to the German ambassador to the United States, A few days ago and she said to me pretty clearly that it would if we decide to if we choose to impose this uh, this strict embargo on imports of Russian gas that that would uh, uh, cause a calamity to the German economy I understand these fears and I understand the German politicians misgivings Mm -hmm. about this next step but uh, I believe that uh, we also have to be uh, ready and determined to make our own sacrifices as Poland is.
1: And I want you Mr. Ambassador to convey to my audience some important history that Poland has in this larger conversation. On this program 3 weeks ago, HR McMaster, one of the many national security advisors to former President Trump, said what's happening in Ukraine is analogous to what happened to Poland in 1939. Acquaint my audience with that if they may not remember, and why you think it is or isn't comparable or analogous to what's happening in Ukraine.
2: Uh, this is what uh, I, I once said in an interview, that uh, Poland and some other countries on the eastern flank are doing for Ukraine what some other countries did not do for Poland in 1939, when we were invaded not only by Germany, mm-hmm. this is not common knowledge right. here in the United States, mm-hmm. but also by the Soviet Union. Right. We we were Early attacked in September by Germany, by Germany late in On September of 1939, by the Soviets. and 17, 16 days later, we were invaded by, by the Soviet We were stabbed in the back, actually, by the Soviet army. So we were uh, attacked and occupied by uh, two neighboring superpowers. Uh, and then we knew, we, we, we know what happened. Mm-hmm. That um, the appeasance and uh, this attempt to appease the Germans... Mm-hmm peace the Soviets at the very beginning of the war uh, turned out to be critical in Europe's response to that uh, to the Nazi threat. Right, and then we know what happened: France, Denmark, the Netherlands, Norway, mm-hmm. Battle of Britain, mm-hmm. everything fell, and so on. Everything fell. Europe was, was uh, almost Consumed. entire Europe was was occupied by, by Germany. Uh, then Russia. Germany attacked Russia, Mm -hmm. so change of alliances. Uh, We want to prevent that scenario now in Europe, and we are pretty serious about that. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, this is what
1: I... And the seriousness of that is in part what you try to communicate to European nations unwilling to take more aggressive economic moves. If you don't take them other more dreadful things may follow.
2: I I will tell you what our dilemma is Mm -hmm. right now and what what dilemma we are facing. Uh, We should ask ourselves whether we want to defend our freedom and our independence in Ukraine, delivering weapons to the Ukrainian uh, armed forces and helping President Zelensky prevail, Mm -hmm. or we want to defend freedom in Warsaw, in Krakow, in Berlin, in Stockholm, even in Paris. That's the question. And I think most uh, politicians in those countries have to answer that question sincerely. Do you think Ukraine can win? Uh, I do. I didn't believe in that scenario two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Now I do. They have a very tight window of opportunity right now. Mm-hmm. All right. we, we said a few minutes ago that the Russians are now regrouping, they are moving their units to the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, probably they have already uh, resigned themselves to just um, conquer this part of Ukraine, not the whole country, mm-hmm. uh, which is a bad sign and a good sign, too. Right. Uh, because uh, they, I, I believe they, they have not yet unlocked their whole potential. They have still hundreds of thousands of conscripts which have not been sent yet to the front lines. They can be sent to Ukraine uh, overnight. They still have a lot of equipment, in spite of the fact that their losses have been massive. Mm-hmm. But still, but the Russian army is pretty uh, powerful. Uh, not very well commanded. Uh, logistically, it's uh, an utter mess. But uh, we should fear the, the military might of, of the Russian army. We should not, you know. Uh, delude ourselves mm-hmm. into thinking that we, we, have, we, have now, we are now dealing with a military dwarf. Right. It's still a military giant. So let me
1: engage you at this level, Mr. Ambassador. Everything you just said resonates, both historically and in the current moment. As you well know, in the latter months of the Second World War in Europe, it was a war of enormous savagery. On both sides, things that would have not been contemplated earlier in that war were not only contemplated, but carried out. Massive firebombing and all that to end the war, to achieve victory at whatever cost. I use that as a preamble to say, I understand that Ukraine is not a NATO country, and diplomatically and politically, there are rules against engagement. But to use your argument, if you extend this to, are you defending Ukraine or do you want to defend Paris and Berlin? And other parts of Europe not yet invaded. And you you can, are going
2: to ask me about the no-fly zone. Can you
1: can or, or anything that's direct military engagement to achieve for the Ukrainians victory there now, even if it means a direct military engagement? Because some on the show have said we're already there. It's essentially already there, and we're the meaning the West is the only side adhering to this distinction. The Russians aren't and won't.
2: Uh, my impression is that we are pushing those boundaries now mm-hmm. slightly, bit by bit. Uh, two weeks, three weeks ago, we heard also from the current American administration voices which, were, uh, which objected to uh, further and deeper military engagement. There was that ongoing debate about uh, so-called offensive weapons, mm-hmm. We were all talking about uh, the politicians and military experts. We're talking about defensive weapons because it, it is a defensive war. But how can you defend your country only with defensive weapons facing such a huge military mm-hmm. operation? Uh, so now the, the mood has changed. Mm-hmm. We are no longer talking about, uh, we are not making that distinction between defensive weapons and defensive weapons. This morning we have heard about a new plan and a very long list Yes. of weaponry, which is going to be sent by $800 million. $800 million allocated for, for weaponry, uh, uh, supposed to be transferred immediately to Ukraine. Hold that thought, Mr. Ambassador. Howitzers. Howitzers. Helicopters.
1: And more. Hold that thought. More of our conversation with the Polish Ambassador to the United States. I'm Major Garrett. Segment for The Takeout, coming up in just one second.
0: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout.
1: Our thanks to Supra, our host restaurant. Good to be out and about again. Polish Ambassador to the United States is our special guest, Marek Magarowski. Mr. Ambassador, you were talking about this announcement from the Biden administration, $800 million. This is announced on April 13th. We were recording this the afternoon of April 13th. I always like to remind you of that, folks, because fast-moving events may overtake certain things, but that's... Not only a lot of money but it's offensive weapons how it and serves hardware well. yes and that is in itself a structural change in thinking and deployment
2: as I said we, we have to defend our freedoms and our independence uh, our territory in Ukraine without engaging Russia in a uh, in a direct military confrontation nobody needs a confrontation with the Russian Federation this is what also, many Western politicians have been stressing over the last uh, couple of days. NATO General Secretary, Secretary Jens Stoltenberg said this pretty explicitly. On the other hand, if you don't mind, please, I would like to, to, to tell you pretty frankly that Mr. Putin has already achieved what we have been struggling to accomplish for so many years. He has strengthened the Ukrainian national identity. Mm-hmm. He has proven that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are not the same nation, are not the same people. He has reinvigorated the European Union. Mm -hmm. He has uh, triggered a dramatic paradigm shift in Germany's policy, especially in terms of energy security. Uh, He has pushed Sweden and Finland towards NATO. Uh, The two uh, prime ministers of these two countries have already announced that they would apply for NATO membership shortly which is quite an, uh, an event. All of
1: these are strategic setbacks for Russia.
2: Uh, I don't know whether he expected that. I don't know, by the way, to what extent he realized it, what is going on mm-hmm. in Ukraine right now, what his closest aides are telling him.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: whether he, we, we, we mentioned that at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, what is the picture he is getting, right. for example, from his daily uh, briefings? With his uh, with the uh, guys who work in Russian intelligence, for example, it's it's quite a natural phenomenon to submit to deliver mm-hmm. information to your superior, especially if right. his name is Putin, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, would not you know jangle his nerves. <laughs> and that's why I believe that he he's not getting the the, the, the whole picture of what uh, is occurring right now in Ukraine.
1: Mr. Basser, I'd like to ask you. Uh, I imagine your government had an assessment of President Zelensky before the war. Has its assessment changed since the war began?
2: I think Zelensky is now a superhero for many of us. It's incredible because he, he, uh, he is a lawyer uh, by, by a by profession. Then he became a comedian, mm-hmm. an actor. Uh, and then he became, um, uh, pretty surprisingly, it was also a surprise for Poland that he became president. <laughs> But uh, from the very beginning of his presidency, uh, the Polish president Andrzej Duda Mm -hmm. uh, established a very close and a very friendly relationship with him. Uh, So now we we saw those pictures uh, this morning. April April 13th. April 13th. uh, President Duda, accompanied by by his uh, three other friends from Lithuania, Estonia and Mm -hmm. and Latvia, his three counterparts from the Baltic countries, uh, paid a visit to Kiev, uh, they spoke with Mr. Zelensky, another sign and another symbol of solidarity. They just wanted to show how united we are, how, how coherent our message is to, to President Zelensky. So his image worldwide has changed dramatically. And He's the leader of the free world right now, actually.
1: It feels that way. Yeah? It certainly feels that way. Let me ask you a couple of basic questions Does Poland or has Poland experienced any kind of cyber attack from the Russians? during this invasion? Of course. It has?
2: Yes. Not, not uh, on a massive scale, mm-hmm. but, but yes, of course. I know there is an ongoing debate about uh, to what a degree the Russians have been using this tool mm-hmm. from the beginning of the hostilities. And I, I happened to read an, a, a lengthy article about uh, cyber warfare in the case of the, of, of, of the war in Ukraine. It's not so clear that the Russians somehow refrained from using these methods and uh, cyber uh, toolbox uh, in order to cripple, for example, the Ukrainian economy, Mm. the Ukrainian uh, cyber infrastructure, uh, websites of uh, Ukrainian authorities. But uh, Poland, yes, we have also experienced this kind of attacks. But nothing that has disabled the country? No, no, absolutely.
1: And that's because they haven't used all they have or your guards and defenses are pretty good?
2: I think that they, uh, when you start a war, uh, you usually attack uh, physically and kinetically some uh, uh, targets, which uh, in some cases also um, harbor critical infrastructure. So if you want to bomb a power grid, you don't need to uh, destabilize it electronically, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I think that uh, the Russians believe that they would destroy at least part of the Ukrainian infrastructure, without engaging the uh, uh, units which uh, specialize in cyber warfare.
1: But to be clear, Poland has experienced some form of cyber intrusions from Russia.
2: Yes. Yes. For many years, by the way. I'm sure. As this country has, as this country has as well.
1: What is the level of anxiety within Poland about being a either intentional or unintentional victim of a stray bit of fire coming from the Ukraine war across your border?
2: Of course we are concerned. Uh, There was that one uh, uh, attack, missile attack, very close to our borders. It was like about 10 or 15 Mm, miles from the border. So people who lived on the Polish side, uh, they saw the the windows in their houses tremble uh, from the blast. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was pretty, you know, impressive and uh, disquieting for many people. Uh, I know many you know, I, I have many friends back in Poland who are just freaking out when they, when they hear all those nuclear threats mm-hmm. uh, pronounced by by President Putin. Now they have uh, a little bit uh, eased up on those uh, on, on, on that manner but still it 's it's, it's really disturbing when you hear someone the leader of a, of a nuclear superpower saying that they, they might use their nuclear arsenal to attack uh, NATO countries
1: mm-hmm. and For my audience's benefit, should it think of Poland as the significant transshipment point for these materials moving in? No, it's not only a
2: hub for weapons deliveries to Ukraine. I think Poland has also become much more vital politically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, for the current uh, US administration, I believe that that the Americans have already uh, had a different perception of Poland. Now, this has changed and I believe that uh, in terms of our political and also military cooperation, Poland has become a much more important partner. There was that discussion in Poland for many years about uh, Germany's and Poland's role in the security architecture in Europe and beyond. Uh, Germany has always been the the focal point, Mm -hmm. not only of, of, of the American military presence in Europe, are uh, so many American and uh, NATO bases in Germany and so few in Poland. Mm-hmm. And now this is also changing. And there is now talk about locating permanent bases in Poland mm-hmm. and in other countries on the eastern flag. And I think Poland will be one of, the, of those countries in which we would gladly host many more american troops.
1: to use terminology from a bygone era poland might be a frontline state mr ambassador it's been it a is. great it is a frontline well, it state is. already is it's been a great pleasure to talk to you for our radio audience we need to say farewell for those watching on cbs news streaming and listening on the podcast stay tuned as i know you always do for the takeout outtake Especial. i'm major garrett we'll see you next week
0: man that sunset is gorgeous CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Our thanks to Supra, our host restaurant. could be back out and about. We are joined by the Polish ambassador to the United States, Marek Magarewski. Mr. Ambassador, uh, for our audience that may know and may feel it deeply, and for those who don't know, describe the Polish-American experience and the Polish American history as seen by you and your government?
2: How many hours do we have?
1: <laughs> We've got five minutes and 15 seconds. This is a very long history. <laughs> yes.
2: I'll tell you an anecdote. Yes. Uh, I was in Tallahassee, mm-hmm. the capital of Florida, yes, a few months ago, uh, meeting with uh, Governor DeSantis, and uh, I was accompanied by one of my colleagues from the embassy. We were sitting at the airport, a, a tiny one in Tallahassee, mm-hmm. and there was one uh, police officer, on duty at that airport and we were talking I was talking to my colleague in Polish and he heard what language we were speaking in. and he just turned around and asked us are you speaking in Polish and I said yes my wife is Polish of all places a single police officer in Tallahassee yes, his wife was Polish mm-hmm. uh, so many people who uh, have Polish roots. Right. I did not even expect that when I Upper arrived Midwest, in the United States,
1: for sure. Chicago, yes. obviously. Chicago is the
2: second largest Polish city mm-hmm. after Warsaw. <laughs> uh, so many good feelings, good vibes. Yes. Uh, when I, I... I also had a hearing at uh, in a parliamentary committee in the, in the lower house of the Polish parliament before I was officially appointed as Polish ambassador to the US. And I, what I said in my presentation... Uh, was um, a very clear fact that uh, Paul's also built this country Mm -hmm. when you watch uh, all those Hollywood movies about the origins of of your country you usually see Italians um, Irish uh, some Jews uh, Germans Mm -hmm. Paul's on the sidelines Uh, Pulaski, Kosciuszko Mm -hmm. that's okay But we tend to forget that there were also architects, engineers, designers, artists, uh, athletes, Mm -hmm. Stan Mm Muschal, one of the famous baseball players. How many of you know what his roots were? And so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it is also my role as Polish ambassador here to remind Americans and also to remind my fellow countrymen Mm -hmm. to what extent... How largely we contributed as poles to the American culture, to the American politics, to the American economy.
1: My mother's people, the Swedes, get left out of the American story (laughs) with some degree of regularity, too. Uh, So I I understand. I have some uh, familiarity with that experience. So, Mr. Ambassador, we have on the show three questions we ask every single guest. And I'm going to give you the three questions. Our audience loves the answers because they learn something with each and every one of the answers. So... Most influential or one of the most influential books you've read in your life. Okay. One of your favorite movies, and it can be a Polish movie, it can be an American movie, it can be any kind of movie. And if you're flying back to Poland or in Poland and taking a long drive or a long train ride and you're really going to enjoy some music, what kind of music are you most likely to listen to, either by artist or genre? Uh,
2: Last week I was in Louisiana, Mm -hmm. in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. so you can imagine what kind of music is my favorite. Jazz? Yes. Uh, books I graduated from Hispanic Studies mm-hmm. in Poznan back in Poland so I'm uh, somehow submerged in uh, Spanish and uh, Latin American literature mm-hmm. I would recommend Carlos Fuentes to everyone, also Gabriel Garcia Marquez mm-hmm. uh, I- I'm not going to be very innovative in this particular sphere uh, movies uh, it's difficult mm-hmm. really uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. We would have to talk much longer about We'll
1: talk, and if something comes up to you, <laughs> if you uh, are back in Poland and someone asks you, who's never been to America, what's America really like? How would you finish that sentence?
2: America's is like, um, I can feel freedom here. Mm-hmm. You know, we always, when we lived under communism, we always aspired to be as American as possible. Mm-hmm. Or as German as possible. But when we were talking about Germany, it was not about a freedom of expression, uh, freedom of movement. It was about wealth. We wanted to be as rich as the Germans. But when we were, when we were talking and thinking about America, we, want, we always wanted to be as free as the Americans. I feel free here.
1: That's great. Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great pleasure. Great honor to meet you and talk to you pleasure and get your mine. perspective. Hope you thank enjoy you. that, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for hanging out at The Takeout. And many thanks again to Supra, our host restaurant. We'll
0: see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout,
1: you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.